If you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me in the middle to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. You can find that on page 774 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Of all the prophets in the Bible, Jonah is probably top 5 best well-known. Most of us, even if we didn't grow up uh, going to church, at some point heard about the story of Jonah. Odds are, if if we've heard anything about the Bible, then we've at least heard of at least three stories. We've heard of David and Goliath, heard of Daniel and Lion's Den, and you've heard of Jonah and this enormous fish that swallowed him. Now, familiarity, they say, often brings apathy. And so it's easy to come at the book of Jonah a little apathetic. Oh, I know this story. What can I hope to gain out of it? Uh, To most people, I think the fantastic story of Jonah is just that, a story. But as we explore this book over the next few weeks, I hope to show you that it is much more than that. Theologians like to talk about the red thread that runs through Scripture, which binds and connects everything together in the person and the work of Jesus. In the book of Jonah, this thread is really more like a highway that leads us from an accurate understanding of the corruption of the sin of man to a merciful God who stands poised and ready not only to defend his holy righteousness, but who also stands with hands that are stretched out to extend mercy and grace to those who don't deserve it. The great fish, which Jonah is so well known for, is in reality a really a minor character and a greater story. And at the end of the day, this is a book about the long-suffering God of creation who reigns over the nations in unstoppable power and authority. This is the story about the Lord of the universe who appoints the comings and goings of prophets, sailors, kings, and peasants. It's a book about the heart of God who does not delight in the death of the wicked, but who also enforces perfect justice while showing undeserved mercy. It's a book filled with humor and sarcasm while proving a deadly point to those who presume upon the grace of God. It's a book that teaches us about the heart of God who cares for those who do not know their right hand from their left and still delights in the work of his hands despite the way sin has corrupted the world so that he even cares for the lives of the cows in a city. At the end of the day, the book of Jonah is meant to refresh our view of who God is. That is, to show us the God who who truly is, moving us to a true and genuine worship as we see the shadow of Christ dancing on the waves of the sea. So I'm excited to get into this book with you, if you haven't picked that up yet. Let's begin by reading our passage. If you would, out of respect for God's word, please stand as we read together. This is the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, Mark Furtado summarizes the theme of the book of Jonah well when he says, The Lord is a God of boundless compassion, not just for us, but also for them. I don't know if you've ever thought about the book of Jonah that way, but Futano is right, and this theme is particularly apparent in the opening words of the book of Jonah. Now, it might surprise you to hear God in the Old Testament being described as compassionate. It seems that many people, when it comes to the Old Testament, are under the impression that God is only a wrathful judge. In fact, some people will read the Old and New Testament against each other to the point where they feel like the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. But that isn't true. Some people are under the impression that God is only a wrathful judge. But the book of Jonah, in particular, challenges that assumption. And it brings us face to face with the reality and the complexity of who God truly is. And it does this within even the first three verses. Now this theme is not unique to the book of Jonah. In fact, the book of Jonah really is only further illustrating and carrying on what God has already demonstrated in his word to this point about who he is. You may be familiar with another prophet, Moses, and a conversation that he had with God at the burning bush where God called him into service telling him that he was going to go to Israel and that he was going to redeem uh, the Israelites from their slavery and their suffering in Egypt. And when Moses asked God, Who should I say sent me? Since the Egyptians, and tragically many of the Israelites at this point, were recognizing many gods, God replied to him, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's divine name, which he proclaimed before Moses, communicates the perfection of who he is. He is who he is. There is no one like him. God is not subject to anyone's list of who they think he ought to be. He has no beginning and no end. While he is intimately present in and at work in the world, he is distinct from his creation. There is no shadow in him, no variation in him, because he is changeless. He is the fountain from which all goodness and truth and love flows. And he has revealed himself in his word and in his work. Now later we're told that Moses was meeting with God after Israel had come out on Mount Sinai. And he asked God to show him his glory. And in Exodus 34, we read about how God graciously showed Moses the fading, the trailing end of his glory. How he passed before Moses and proclaimed his name, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
Friends, that is one of the most powerful passages in the Bible. When I say that the book of Jonah brings us face to face with who God is, it is because we see everything that God said about himself to Moses put into action, showing compassion and love in the most glorious, though perhaps unexpected way. So we see, even in these opening verses, the God who is. We see that God is, and these will be our three points this morning, we see that God is a God of, compa- of compassion. He's a God of compassion. Second, we see that God is a God who is just. He is just. Third, we see that God is a God who is here and there. Let's begin by looking at God's compassion. Well, Jonah, what you need to know about Jonah is that he was a prophet from a little city named gath Hefer which is listed in Joshua 19, if you remember back to our series. I know no one remembers this. All the way back to Joshua chapter 19 is actually listed as one of the boundaries, one of the territory markers that was given to the tribe of Zebulun. His father's name was Amittai, and he ministered in the kingdom of Israel not long after the death of Elisha, the prophet Elisha, who you may be familiar with, during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, that's a lot of information for all you history nuts. Uh, If you're trying to see how Jonah fits into the story of the Bible, then that's where we're talking about. Just after Elisha, before some of the other prophets that we're more familiar with. Now, besides his work in Nineveh, Jonah was actually really well known in Israel because he had prophesied about the restoration of Israel's borders under Jeroboam II's rule. Now, previously, the kingdom of Israel had been oppressed by the Syrians who were to the north, who had actually taken over a decent amount of land from them. And in 2 Kings chapter 14, we read about how the Lord saw the bitter affliction of Israel's suffering, and how, even though Jeroboam II was a wicked king, God had compassion on his people and restored their borders to them under his rule. All of this happened, we're told, according to the word which God had spoken by Jonah. Now the name Jonah means dove, which is worth mentioning because of the way that the prophet Hosea describes the kingdom of Israel, saying Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. So, dove, silly and without sense. Now though Jonah was in fact a distinguished prophet, I'd say that name actually fits him rather well. Jonah does a lot of foolish, senseless things in this book. But Jonah is also called the son of Amittai, which means son of my faithfulness. Which again is fitting because in spite of the way that Jonah behaves in rather silly ways multiple times in this book, God regularly and miraculously shows his faithfulness and his loving kindness to him even as he also showed it to the nation of Israel, which was in rebellion against him, and as he showed it even to the Ninevites. So the theology of the book of Jonah, really, I I want you to know, it's it's built on more than Jonah's name. But it's worth noticing those two little details because I think they richly complement what this book is getting at. Now, as we look at this, this, this passage, we see that God's faithful compassion appears Particularly, it's particularly evident in two ways. First, it's evident in the way that God speaks. God's compassion is made evident in the fact that he speaks and in what he says. Second, 
It is evident in the way that God sins. It's evident in the way that God sins. In verse 1, we're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. More, more literally, verse 1 actually says that the word of the Lord was or became to Jonah. We're not told how Jonah received this word, whether it was an audible voice or a dream or a vision or something else. But what, it was, what is clear is that the message was from God, and what is also clear is what God was commanding Jonah to do. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now at first, as you're reading these verses, you may, that may not strike you as compassionate, but it is. And God's compassion stands out here in at least two important ways. First, we need to recognize this is the word of the Lord given to Jonah, which he was being commanded to share with others. Now make no mistake, Jonah has been commanded to call out against the Ninevites. I don't, I don't want to in any way diminish the evil that they were doing, nor do I want to sugarcoat the message that Jonah has been commissioned to preach against them. But this is the word of the Lord. There is no law, no requirement saying that God had to say anything to these people or to a people who had set themselves in the crosshairs of his righteous wrath. Romans 1 makes it very clear that the evidence of God has gone out into the world, that what can be known about God is plain and apparent to men everywhere because he has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine name, have been clearly perceived ever since the world was first created in the things that have been made. His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, not because the truth is not there, but because of the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The shocking thing about these two opening sentences in the book of Jonah, which first reveals God's love and compassion, is that God is speaking to the Ninevites, warning them yet again of what is to come. He is sending a prophet to them. And not just any prophet, but Jonah, the son of Amittai, the, the guy who had prophesied about how God was going to have mercy on the kingdom of Israel, how he was going to spare them from being wiped out by their enemies and actually restore them to what he had first promised and given to them through their forefathers. I'll tell you what is judgment from God. In the book of Lamentations, we see that one of the key features of God's wrath towards the unrighteousness of men is that he cuts them off from understanding his word. He cuts them off from his word. Listen to this description of the condition of the kingdom of Judah in the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. In Lamentations 2, verse 14, it cries out, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your, your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. That's, that's judgment. That's not what's happening here with Jonah. God could have allowed the Ninevites to go on, diving headlong into this coming destruction, but no. Here he is. He's crying out to them, declaring to them what will be so that they may repent and turn back. People have this caricature of God in the Old Testament when they read things like this, talking about wrath and destruction and death, and they get this idea that God is some vengeful monster who's just sitting at his computer looking for, his excuse, looking for an excuse to smite somebody. That couldn't be further from the truth. The same God who loved the world 
by sending his son into it, not to condemn it, but to save it, is the very same God who spoke through the prophet Jonah to a city on the path of destruction to save it as well through his word. No one compelled God to do this. No law requires him to do anything. He's God. His holiness, his perfection, that is the rule of his judgment. The only thing compelling God to speak then, to, to warn these Ninevites, is the compassionate, faithful love that he has in himself, which he shows to sinners who don't deserve it. Now the second shocking way that we see God's compassion standing out here is that he spoke this word to Jonah to be carried to the Ninevites. Now, Nineveh is one of the oldest cities in the world, dating all the way back to the days of Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah. So when I say this is old, this is old. It was located about 500 miles northeast of Israel in what we know today as northern Iraq. I actually have some friends that don't live very far from this. It had always been an important city, but at this point in human history, it was particularly important because it was a capital city of the Assyrians. So, you think Nineveh, you need to think Assyrians. And I can tell nobody knows what that means. Alright, so in his word, God is calling Nineveh the great city, which tells us something of its size and prestige. The reason it's important to connect Nineveh to the Assyrians is that the Assyrians are going to be the next, at this point in time, are going to be the next big empire on the scene. We're talking about on the same scale as the Babylonians. At this point, the Assyrians were locked in a, a struggle of life and death with, a, with some rival neighbors. So this word that God sends to Jonah was particularly relevant. And if you know anything about the Assyrians or the Assyrian Empire, then you'll understand why it's so shocking that God would send Jonah to these people. Of all the ancient empires, the Assyrians stand out for their cruelty and for their pride. Now, I'm not going to repeat some of the things that they boast about on their walls about what they would do to people. But suffice it to say, they make the Romans look relatively mild-mannered and reasonable. Okay? Awful things. Despicable people. These are the same guys who are going to come in later and destroy the kingdom of Israel. Who are going to actually invade Judah and come right up to the neck of taking them over. They had no regard for God. They had no regard for the value of human life. They were there to destroy and to consume and to cause pain. And while at this point they hadn't yet dominated Israel, they were definitely enemies. So when God sends Jonah to the Assyrians, it would be like sending a Ukrainian to go preach in Moscow. Okay? That's the level of hatred we're talking about here. The reason it's shocking that God would send Jonah to Nineveh is because as Jonah understood, the word of the Lord which warns us is also the word which God uses to lead people into repentance. Jonah, Jonah even says as much in his complaint to God in chapter 4. It's the sort of thing you, 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 you kind of expect God to do in Israel. This is not what you expect him to do in Assyria. And yet God is commanding Jonah to travel over 500 miles to preach to a people who are not part of his covenant so that he can show compassion to them. Compassion to a people who 
to Jonah and the Israelites, well, they frankly hated them. Friends, I hope that you're seeing a little bit of the shocking nature of God's compassion. We are always eager to run to God's compassion when it's for us. We're not always so eager to run to God's compassion when it's for our enemies. The Ninevites were the pinnacle of wickedness. And yet here is God sending his servant Jonah with a word of warning, a word which, if you know the story of Jonah, led these people into repentance. And here's the thing. God has shown that same love and compassion to you. The Bible that you're holding in your hands, it's not just a book among books. It's the Word of God given to you out of the compassionate heart of God. He is not silent, and He has not been silent to you. He's spoken, not just through the prophets, but also, as the author of Hebrews says, that in these last days, He has spoken to us by His own Son, whom He has appointed to hear, the heir of all things, through whom He has created the world. This, this is the word which tells us and confirms to us the word of the gospel which Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you're holding in your hands a physical evidence of the compassion of God towards you. As we look then at the heart of God which welled up with such mercy and grace even towards this enemy nation, we're seeing something about the depths of the mystery of the riches of the love of God who loves us even while we are yet sinners, who sent His Son, who is called the Word of God, into the world to be received by faith with a promise that all who believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our God truly is a God of compassion. He is compassionate. He's also just. And that brings us to our second point this morning. The God who is just. Even as we marvel at the surprising mercy that God showed the Ninevites by commanding Jonah to go to them and to speak to them, we also need to look with hearts of sobriety at the message that he was tasked to bring to them. Look at what God says to Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. A couple weeks ago, I started to notice this unpleasant smell in my truck. And at first, I thought that maybe it was something I had driven past, but then it lingered. And then it got stronger, and I realized this had to be something inside the truck. I was starting out pretty faint. I could ignore it. But then it grew stronger and stronger until it was overwhelming. So after I put the kids down to sleep, I decided to get to the bottom of whatever was making my truck smell so bad. I thought maybe, so we had had some watermelon in there, I thought maybe it slid under one of the seats. Or maybe... It was one of Rebecca's bottles that we had missed. I was wrong. It was much, much worse. So as I cleared the space under the front two seats, and then I, I removed the car seats out, and I started to look under the rear bench, I found the source of the smell. It was a dead mouse. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. I, I actually kind of yelled a little bit when I first saw it. I wasn't expecting it. For several years, uh, I've been carrying these, self, these, these shelf-stable emergency rations in a backpack underneath the, the seat. I don't know how the mouse did it, but he found a way into those rations. 
And while he found a way into the truck, he clearly couldn't find a way out of the truck. And that is a smell I just, I can't describe, but it wells up in the back of my throat when I talk about it. I'll never forget it. It was the smell of death. A smell I couldn't ignore, which twisted my stomach and made me gag. It had to be dealt with. And as awful as that smelled in my mouth, my nose, my nose, so sin smells worse in the nose of God. That mouse had to be dealt with, and so does sin. In verse 2, we see that the whole occasion for why God sent Jonah to Nineveh was that their evil had come up before him. Their, their sin was a stench in God's nose. And though in his loving kindness he had endured them, a time of his patience was coming to an end. He was sending Jonah to call out against the Ninevites. Meaning he was sending Jonah not with a, a message of please repent, please repent, but a message of destruction is coming. Go ahead and write your wills out, boys, because you're going to die. That's, that's what's being said here. It's worth noticing that God doesn't say anything to Jonah about having compassion on Nineveh. He only really tells Jonah to go to Nineveh for the purpose of speaking a message of pain. We know that this was a compassionate move on God's part, primarily because, uh, uh, from chap- because of chapter 3, when we see that God relents of this judgment that is headed their way. And also from what we see about Jonah's response to it in chapter 4. We'll get there later. The point we need to get here is that while God is indeed compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, though God does forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, He will by no means clear the guilty. He cannot sweep sin under the rug any more than I can sweep that mouse under the rug. It was already in the rug. God judges sin even to the third and fourth generations. He does not make idle threats. Just as light shows no quarter to darkness, God's holiness consumes and destroys sin like the blazing sun destroys the night. Unlike me and the whole mouse incident, God sees all. He weighs the thoughts and the intentions of every man. As a holy and righteous judge, he tells us we will be held accountable by him for every idle thought and deed. And it is, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. God tells Jonah that the sin of the Ninevites had come up before him. This is the sort of language that we see God using when he's talking to Abraham about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Nineveh's sin stunk to high heaven, literally. And while God is compassionate and patient, Towards us, we must learn from verse 2 that God is also dedicated to upholding his holiness and enforcing perfect justice. Just listen to what God spoke through Jonah's counterpart, Nahum, about the city of Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. 
The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. When God called Jonah to cry out against Nineveh, that's what he was talking about. He wasn't messing around. His justice is not a joke. Satan will have you think that God doesn't mean it when he says that sin leads us to death. What did Satan say to Eve? You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Satan contradicted God and called God a liar. He convinced Adam and Eve that God was bluffing, that God was holding out on them, and that the life would just be better if they would sin. He convinced them to stop fearing the Lord and he led them into death. But they could not escape God's notice. People struggle with the doctrine of hell. Not because God is unclear about it in his word, but because they are out of touch with the purity of God's holiness and the stench of sin. God's commandments seem burdensome to us because they mean giving up the sin that we love. The gospel calls us to forsake sin and to turn to Christ. But it may seem harsh, even hateful in our world, because we're driven to pursue the desires of the flesh. So apart from grace, we not only practice sin, but we give approval to those who join us. And we demand that others approve us in that sin as well. Our sin is like a deadly python that paints God as a tyrant even while it enslaves us to consume us. The compassionate heart of God which sent Jonah to Nineveh with a word of warning about what would happen if nothing changed was a serious word, for God is just and he will not clear the guilty. It's the same compassionate heart, though, of Jesus as he commissioned the church to be his witnesses, to preach the good news of how God's justice has been satisfied on his, in his cro- cross and how through faith in him we are justified by his works for us. The message given to Jonah reminds us that the church can't faithfully execute the calling that Jesus has given us unless we are likewise willing to call sin what it is and to warn people about what is coming because of it. Now, it is uncomfortable to talk to somebody else about sin. But it is likewise impossible to speak about the meaning and the significance of Jesus' cross if we compromise on this point. As Christians, we're called to talk about sin not because we're trying to browbeat people, but because we're concerned about their souls. Destruction is coming. Wrath is coming. But there is an escape. 
We see in Jonah 1 verse 2 that God sees and he judges. And if we're to share in the compassionate heart of Christ, we must begin at the point of being willing to call sin what it is, even if it costs us. Now thirdly, we see the God who is here and there. So far we've seen that God is a God of compassion. We've seen that he's a God who is just. But now we turn to see Jonah's response to God and we learn that God is a God who is inescapable. In verse 3 we see that Jonah was not in the least bit interested in going to Nineveh. In fact, instead of heading east to Nineveh, we are told he went west and he booked a trip on a ship that was bound across the sea to a place called Tarshish. Now, Calvin speculates that he was that Jonah was unwilling to go in part because he, this was such an unusual command for a prophet to get, in part because he was afraid of how the Ninevites would react to this, and in part because he was discouraged by the lack of his own fruit, of lack of fruit in, in his own ministry in Israel. Understand, Israel at this point, the kingdom of Israel, is not in a good spot. Now, no doubt, all those are valid reasons, but I think there's something else going on here. A reason which Jonah gives us himself in chapter 4, where he says that the ultimate reason he fled was because he knew that God was gracious and compassionate, full of steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So it seems from Jonah's own words that the reason he did this was primarily because he hated the Ninevites and he wanted to see them destroyed. So the irony is thick as we read verse 3. God had called Jonah to go and to call against Nineveh, to actually to speak a word of judgment. But instead, Jonah fled from God, trying to ensure that this disaster would in fact come. Now, we're not really sure where Tarshish is. Some scholars think that this could have been really actually as far as Spain, which is basically the other side of the world as far as Jonah is concerned. The point is that Jonah is making all haste to get out. Let someone else go, God. I'm, I don't, I'm not interested. In fact, I'm willing to leave your land, the land that you have given me as an inheritance, as a son of Abraham, and flee to the other side of the world. That's how much I don't want to do this. Jonah looks like Adam and Eve, hiding from the presence of the Lord in the Garden of Eden. So we see Jonah going on the run, trying to get away from the God who called him to go. So we're told that Jonah went to Joppa, he found a ship, he paid the fare, he climbed aboard, he went down into it, and then he sailed away with a bunch of pagan sailors to a foreign land. It is utterly and completely ridiculous that Jonah, a prophet, a servant of the living God, should think that he could flee the presence of the Lord by getting on a boat and sailing out of Israel. God is not like the gods of the nations whose power and influence was, was thought to be limited to the land or the region where they dwelled. God is the maker of the universe. He created the sea and all that is in it with his word. He was as present in the boat with Jonah as he was and is anywhere else. So as we are looking at Jonah's response, this is, this is ch childish and ridiculous, and you're actually meant to see it that way. Because there's a point being made here. Now, as a kid, I always was amazed at how my parents had this uncanny knack for figuring things out. It's just like they knew. I learned that it was better to just be straightforward with them if something had gone sideways. Now that I'm a parent, I'm trying to teach Titus the same lesson. Right now, he's really, really bad about not washing his hands. 
He thinks he's being sneaky, but honestly, it's really easy to figure out what's going on when you hear the toilet lid slam and you don't hear any water. So we've had plenty of conversations like, Titus, did you wash your hands? No. Or, oh, why? Why? Because you just went to the bathroom. How you know? (laughs) Parents are savvy, right? But they can't be everywhere. God is. God is everywhere. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God knows us. He formed us. He made all creation, and He sustains it by the might of His Word. There is nowhere He is not. He is here, and He is there. It is laughable that Jonah should think he could get away from the presence of God. Confounding, really, why a prophet of God should behave this way. And yet, how often do we hide ourselves away or indulge in secret sins, which are secrets to others, but not to God? How often, after we find ourselves caught in sin, do we only further transgress against the Lord by trying to hide ourselves from Him, thinking that somehow we can escape His presence rather than coming to Him, trusting in that compassionate grace which He has so poured out on us in Christ? If Jonah's actions seem so crazy, why don't ours? Perhaps it's because at the time when we are indulging in such sin, our view of God has grown too small. Perhaps it's because we have fallen into the trap of presuming on God's kindness and patience. Or perhaps it's because our hearts are so racked with grief over our sin that we've bought into the lie that we, since we, we've got to find a way to earn our way back into God's favor. So in the meantime, we've got to find a way to do penance so we can get back into His good graces. And we've got to take care of that first. Friends, I think we're more like Jonah than we'd like to admit. I've completely missed the point of this book from the very beginning if we fail to see the lesson of Jonah's life and the implications of it for our, our own souls. Well, this morning we've, we've seen that God is compassionate. We've seen that he's just. We've also seen he is inescapable. Well, let's lay these lessons to heart. This is the God whom we have sinned against. This is the same God who sent His Son into the world to save sinners such as we are. This is the God who loves us at our best and at our worst, but who will not permit guilt to go on without being dealt with. So let us learn to run to Him. And let us likewise call others to do the same as Jesus, our King, has called us to do. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come before you and we thank you for this word. This word that exposes the compassion of your heart, which is poured out on sinners such as we are. Compassion we do not deserve. God, you didn't show this sort of compassion to the angels. Why 
Why would you show it to us? It is only by your grace and for your glory and for the glory of the name of Christ. So Father, I pray that this morning you would take this message and you would, you would shape and mold our hearts that we would see you rightly in your glory. Father, I pray that you would drive us this morning to repentance. Father, if there is someone here this morning who is fleeing from you, who is, who is running from this, this sin, has, has done everything they can to bury it so that no one can notice it, I pray, Father, that you would show them that what they have done is actually very foolish. I pray, Father, that, that you would make your, your glory known to them. But even in doing so, Father, I pray that you would, you would draw them to yourself to pour out your love and compassion on them, to restore them in a right relationship with you. Teach us, Father, to confess our sin and teach us to trust in the sufficiency of the work of Christ for us. I pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.